Good afternoon. It's pretty hot in here. <laughs> um, if you are anything like um, me and the rest of the homeless GC who've been eating bacon since about 11 o'clock this morning non-stop, you'll be sitting there in this hot room uh, with your Sunday lunch churning away in your stomach and, and the heat might tempt you just to rest your eyes this afternoon during my sermon. And um, I just pleaded you right from the beginning, please don't do that. And I thought I'd tell you, start by telling you a cautionary tale, a very short cautionary tale. A good friend of Lizzie and mine uh, is a guy called Dave, and Dave's a nurse. And I didn't know this, but apparently nurses, when they're on night shifts, they're not allowed to sleep. Or at least Dave in his hospital is not allowed to sleep. And um, he, he was doing a night shift, and he was very tired, and he went into a storeroom, and um, he... Uh, he was, found himself alone in the storeroom and he thought, you know what I should do in this moment, I should rest my eyes I think that would be a good thing to do of course that was the int- most logical thing to think at that moment so he just leant up against a shelf you know, and he just rested his eyes and of course within a couple of seconds he's asleep um, or at least as asleep as you can be when you're leant up against a shelf in a storeroom and um, you know how it is when you're in that hinterland between sleep and awakeness um, your brain starts to do crazy things, you start to imagine things. And Dave imagined that his supervisor walked into the room and saw him there resting his eyes. And so he hatched a plan in this dreamlike state. What I'm going to do is I will just I'll slide my, my face off my hand and knock it gently into the shelf and I'll be wide awake and I'll be able to convince my supervisor that I wasn't actually resting my eyes, I was actually awake all along. And so that was what he did. He said he went a little bit too quickly and he kind of headbutted the shelf and was wide awake in an instant and of course he realised that his supervisor wasn't there, but what was there was a massive hole in his forehead uh, where he gashed over his forehead, so he had to go two floors down to A&E um, and explain to them that he was a massive moron um, and get himself sewn up. Um, so the moral of that story really is if this afternoon you're tempted to shut your eyes, just rest your eyes, don't do it because you'll probably wake up having headbutted something or someone in your surrounding area. Um, so, don't rest your eyes. Now, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks or a few months, really, we're uh, coming towards the end of a series on the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament to the people of Galatia. And the context of that letter is that Paul had been travelling through Galatia and uh, he had uh, preached the gospel to the people there. He preached the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, the Jewish Messiah, had come down to earth, that he had lived the perfect life, that he had died, he had been resurrected, and he had ascended to heaven where he was Lord of all the earth. And the good news was that if you put your trust in that, if you put your trust in Jesus, that there was a way for you to be reconciled to God, for your sins to be forgiven, Um, and regardless of your background to be welcomed into God's family and so Paul preached this to the Galatians and they received it and he planted some churches and then he went on his way preaching the gospel elsewhere and planting churches elsewhere and a while later he heard on the grapevine that things were really starting to go awry in the Galatian churches that some people from Jerusalem some people claiming to be believers had come along and they were saying it's great that you've embraced Jesus it's great that you've become Christians but when Paul preached the gospel to you he, he didn't finish the story there were some other things that uh, you need to do in order to be properly right with God 
You need to take on circumcision and you need to um, come under the law of Moses. Essentially, you need to become Jewish. And this had led to some division in the church. Um, Some of the Jews had withdrawn from eating with the Gentiles. And when Paul heard about that this was happening, it's fair to say that he was apoplectic with rage. Um, There was... uh, And and he was angry because... um, Essentially, if you try to add anything on to Jesus, if you say that there's a certain identity you need to take on, that you need to take on circumcision, or you need to fulfil certain laws, then what you're doing is you're saying that the work of Jesus isn't enough. And that's really the whole message of Galatians. And so we come now to uh, chapter 5, and I'm going to read from chapter 5 now. So if you want to take out your Bibles... On your phones, go from the Wimbledon app to the Bible app. Um, (laughs) And I will be reading from uh, verse 1 through to 15. We all there? Okay. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, for you are called to freedom, brothers. And do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let me just pray briefly. Heavenly Father, I pray that you uh, would send your spirit into this room now. Lord, I pray you would equip me to speak with clarity on your word this afternoon. Lord, I pray you would open our hearts to be convicted and transformed by the power of your word. Lord, I pray that you just be here by your spirit. Be here and do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Paul starts with those famous words, for freedom Christ has set us free. And literally in the Greek it's even simpler. It says, for freedom Christ freed us. And if you, if you read it like that, it almost sounds like a tautology, doesn't it? It sounds like a phrase that needlessly says the same thing twice. Um, if Christ freed us, then for what other purpose was it than for our freedom? But what Paul's opening this passage with is a purpose statement. He's reminding us of the glorious simplicity of the gospel, that the purpose Jesus came to earth was so that we could be free. I don't know whether there are any students in here. Are there students? You want to put your hand up if you're a student? Have you just finished your exams? Anyone still doing their exams? No one? You finished. Okay, well, that's good. Um, for the last three months or so, you've probably been 
applying yourself. You've been, uh, you know, getting up really early in the morning, maybe about 10 a.m., and working through all the way till <laughs> 3. You know, you've, you've only been taking Friday, Saturday, and Sunday off. You know, you've really been applying yourself, and it's all going towards that final exam, really, isn't it? I know when I was at university, there were people that crossed the dates off. And that, that final exam, they were working all the way up towards that. And even on the morning of the exam, everything in you is dedicated towards that final obstacle, isn't it? And when you're sat there, you're wanting to get every ounce of knowledge from your brain down your arm into the pen and onto the piece of paper. And then when the invigilator says, you know, time or whatever they say, if you're anything like me, there's just this amazing weight that lifts off your shoulders. You, you know that feeling? You just feel... I, I've fulfilled my obligations. I'm a student. I'm here to, to get through this year. I've done it. I've made it through. And you're probably now living in the freedom that comes of finishing your last exam. You can go up to Primrose Hill on Sunday mornings and you don't feel guilty about the fact that you haven't, you're not revising. You know, it's a glorious thing. And actually there's a degree to which life is like that. Except we're all facing an exam that there's no way we can get past. We're all facing that final obstacle before the freedom that somewhere in our heart we know we're made for, but we can't get past it. And that was really the reason that Jesus came. Jesus came so that we could get past that obstacle. You see, the Bible says that God is perfect, and as the perfect God, he demands perfection. He can only interact with people who are perfect like he is. And we were made to be in relationship with him, but we're not perfect, so we can't relate to him. There's that obstacle that we can't get past. And so God sent his son, and it says that he bridged the gap. He tore down the obstacle. He lived the perfect life. And that when we trust in him, the righteousness that he had is credited to us. The Bible says he bore the punishment that brought us peace. Where we deserved punishment, Jesus was punished on our behalf. Where we deserved to be sent to death, Jesus was sent to death. Where we deserved to be imprisoned, Jesus was imprisoned and he was killed so that we can go free. And that's really the purpose of the gospel, the freedom that Jesus brought us. For freedom, Christ set us free. And so having established that, Paul goes on to give us two warnings. We sung earlier that uh, the word is a lamp to our feet. Well, the Bible is giving us warnings here. Having received the freedom of Christ, Paul's giving us two warnings. Firstly, don't lose it, lose that freedom. And secondly, don't abuse that freedom. And I'm going to be spending most of my time this afternoon uh, on don't lose it, and then we'll hopefully get to a don't abuse it right before the end. So firstly, don't lose that freedom. After Paul says, for freedom Christ set us free, he follows it up by saying, stand firm therefore, do not submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery. Now first reading, that might seem a little bit illogical. I mean, having tasted freedom, why would you want to go back to slavery? I mean, how many of you in this room, if I said, I've got two options, freedom, slavery, you're not going to go slavery every time, you know, it's, it's an illogical choice. And it's even more confusing the fact that this whole conversation goes, uh, goes on in the context of temptation to be circumcised. I mean, could something be less relevant to us? I mean, I think I can speak for all of the guys in this room. There are very few things in the world I am less tempted by than to be circumcised, right? Certainly, if it was in the way that the Galatians would have been circumcised, which would have been with a sharpened flint 
and the only anaesthetic would have been a drop of wine on the tongue. It's not something that I think is going to tempt me at all. (laughs) And yet, we know from our Bibles that it's more complicated than that, isn't it? Paul circumcised Timothy himself. And even in verse 6, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So the act itself doesn't count for anything. So why the harsh words? I mean, Paul is saying there are some really crazy bad consequences for these Galatians if they take on circumcision. It says that they'll be alienated from Christ. They'll be fallen away from grace. They'll be obligated to take on the whole law. They will be taking on a yoke of slavery again. The reason that Paul uses such harsh language is because for the Galatian believers to take on circumcision would be for them to shift some of their confidence, which was on Christ, onto what circumcision represented. And of course, the question then is, well, what did circumcision represent to them? Well, it represented two things. Firstly, an identity. The origin of circumcision in the Bible is uh, God's covenant with Abraham. And God came to Abraham, and at the time it was called Abram, and he said, Abram, don't be afraid. I'm your shield, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you descendants. Those descendants are going to be my people, and I'm going to give them the land, and through them, I'm going to bless the nations. And as a mark of my covenant with you, as a mark of my promise to you as a people, as a mark of your faith in my faithfulness, I want you to circumcise your boys eight days after they're born. Now, this rite of circumcision um, was actually unique in the ancient world in that it happened at birth. That We do have other records of other communities around that time that did circumcise uh, the men, but it always happened um, at a later age, often before puberty or going into an important life event like marriage. What was unique about Jewish circumcision was it happened at birth. And that's significant because these Jewish boys, which were representative of the whole culture, it was a patriarchal society, so the boys taking on was on behalf of everyone. These Jewish children, they were being initiated into God's covenant, his covenant of blessing, before they could do anything about it. It was something they were born into. It's not like an eight-day-old child can go up to their dad and be like, hey, call the rabbi, you haven't circumcised me yet. You know, it's not something that, they don't play a role in it. And it's God's unmerited favour on them. And what happened over time was that pride crept in and that the Israelites started to look upon that mark, that badge of their blessing and find their confidence in that rather than the one who blessed them. It's a bit like the president. You know, the president has a, a, a team of security guards who are responsible for looking after him. And you can imagine he goes into a crowd and they might give him something to mark him out. So he's the one that they're protecting. So if he's surrounded by lots of people, um, they know how to spot him. Say it's a red cap. He wears a red cap. He's a crowd of those people. We know the guy in the red cap. He's the one we're protecting. It'd be crazy for the president to turn around and say... My, my security is in the cap. It isn't. It's in the guys who are protecting him, right? It'd be nuts if he went to the next event and he said to the security guys, hey, don't worry, you guys go home, I've got the cap. It's illogical. And yet over time, the Israelites had shifted their confidence off the one who blessed them and onto the marks of the blessing. 
And this is really the temptation that is being levelled at the Galatians. It's saying, you don't need to put your confidence in Jesus, you need to put your confidence in an identity that previously was seen as a mark of God's blessing. And Steph actually preached a sermon on this uh, three or four weeks ago called What is Your Badge or What Badge Are You Wearing? And if you weren't here to listen to it, I'd really recommend go away, download it, listen to it. It was a blinder. Um, And what he was saying was that he was talking about the temptation of shifting our confidence off of Jesus and onto things that we were born with, like our looks or our intelligence or, or talents or maybe our race. And how there's a temptation to find our confidence in that, our justification, our reason for being, our right standing before God. And that's madness. Because we know that that's not enough. We know that only Jesus is enough. We know that before God we have nothing for him. That we're all equally unworthy before him. And I didn't really want to repeat Steph's blinder of a sermon, so I was praying for you know, what God was wanting to bring through this passage. And it really jumped out at me that in relation to identity, the temptation for the Galatians of circumcision was one of religious affiliation. It was this idea that if they aligned themselves with a certain religious group or a certain orthodoxy, that they would be more right with God. And I think... That's something that is very important for us here. You see, I love Rev. I joined Rev when, with Lizzie when we were going out in my first year of university. We went all the way through university here. And we got married and we moved into the area so we could be a part of this church. We're dedicated to it. I love how we love God. I love how we love the Spirit and the Word. I love how we serve the poor. I love this church. I love you guys. But that doesn't make us any more right before God than other churches that put their faith solely in Christ. We're no more right before God because of our affiliation with a certain religious orthodoxy. We can't find our confidence in the fact that we're broadly conservative evangelicals. Our confidence is in Christ. Affiliation with any earthly group counts for nothing. It's affiliation with Christ that counts for something. So, the first was identity. The second thing that circumcision would have represented is the law. Now, the more biblically literate of you may have some objections here. You may say, well, circumcision was given to Abraham and the law was given to Moses. They were two distinct covenants. And there's a degree to... and you know, So you can't lump them in together. And there's a degree to which you'd be right. But, of course, Paul makes the illusion. <laughs> in verse 3, he says that every man who lets himself be circumcised, he's obligated to obey the whole law. And this isn't the only time he says it. Elsewhere he says, yeah, circumcision is a great thing if you can obey the whole law. What's going on here? Well, the Judaizers, when they were saying Christ isn't enough, sorry, when they were saying that you needed to take on circumcision, they were saying you need to obey some aspects of the law, you need to come under the law, and thereby earn God's merit, and that he will then return the favour with salvation that you can work up a a right standing before him through moral success. In Philippians 3, Paul lists off the things that he was proud of before he met Jesus. And one of them is being circumcised on the eighth day. He says he looked to that and he thought, I'm right before God because I had that religious success. And then he says, but he, he counts it now all as dung, rubbish. 
because of the surpassing worth of Christ. You see, he came before the majestic work of Jesus and the successes of this world just seemed totally irrelevant by comparison. You see, when we think that by doing some good things we can earn God's favour and that in return he will look on us favourably and, 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 and say, we're okay, we can come into his family. We're deluding ourselves. There's no way we can work up to that standard. And certainly when you look at Jesus, there's no way we can work up to Jesus' standard. So at its core it's delusional, but it's also fundamentally selfish. You see, when we look at our good works and we say that they're somehow earning a response from God... We're doing our good works for that response. Our motivation for being holy before God isn't based on love for him, it's based on what he's going to give us in return. You see, we've turned God, who is our father, into our employer. And we know that's not the right way to relate to God. God wants to be our father. He wants us to love him. He wants a life based on just love for him. Now, if you're anything like me, this second one on basing your confidence in your success in life is something that you'll have to learn over and over again. I, I just consistently come back to this. I find myself putting my confidence on, on my success, the things I'm doing right, and then I have to jump back and I'm like, no, it's on Christ. And uh, some of you will have been here a year ago when I uh, preached here. And it'd be fair to say, the last time I preached here, it didn't go too well. Um, I lost my train of thought, um, it was rambling, uh, it, was, it, was, it was horrible. I mean, I forgot to read this, the passage at the beginning of the sermon. I mean, it was so bad. And of course, it was made worse by the fact that at the, at the end, people come up to you and they say, oh, thank you, thank you, it was a great sermon, and you're thinking, it is a terrible sermon. And of course, at the, uh, only later, I could look back and marvel that God had used something so terrible for his purposes anyway. It's hugely humbling. Of course, Dave Smith did come up to me and said, yeah, it was terrible. So that was nice of you there. Um, <laughs> and I went, I went home that evening, and to be honest, I was devastated. I was. I was really, really devastated. And I prayed, and I took it to God. And I was like, God, what's going on? And I felt him speak really clearly to me. He said, you're devastated because you've built some of your confidence on your success at preaching. That some of your right standing before me was built on that idea that you could succeed in that area. And so when you didn't succeed, it really shook at the core of who you were. It's hugely challenging. You see, the Christian life is one where we can embrace the most incredible success and say, I'm no more right before God than I was before I, was, I succeeded. And we can embrace the most catastrophic failure and say, I'm no less right before God than I was before I failed. That's freedom. That's why Paul says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Neither religious success nor religious failure counts for anything. Now this is majorly countercultural. Majorly countercultural. And that's why in verse 11, Paul says... But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross would be removed. He said, it'd be easy for me if I, if I just said, yeah, sure, rest on circumcision. Rest on your identity. Rest on the successes of life. That, then the offence of the cross would be removed. I'd no longer be persecuted. You see, today, like 
in Galatia when Paul was preaching, society was based and is based today on dividing ourselves into groups based on perceived identities, perceived successes. And you see, people cherish their achievements in life and their identities because it gives a kind of cheap justification, doesn't it? So I can justify my existence because of my relative success next to the next guy. And yet the gospel comes in and it says we're all equally unworthy, that actually the only path to fulfilment in this life, the only path to what you were made for is to acknowledge our wretchedness before God and to cling to Jesus' success as the perfect one and to cling to Jesus' identity as the accepted one. People find that offensive. And I think we have to recognise that we're swimming against the cultural tide on this one. That when I started by saying it's kind of illogical to say, uh, having tasted freedom, that we might be tempted by slavery, we have to recognise that culturally we're consistently going to be tempted to put our confidence on our identities and our confidence on our successes in life. So we move on to the second point, and that is don't abuse your freedom. I'm just going to read verses 13 15 again, because um, it was a while ago. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You see, what Paul's saying here is, what, well, the question he's answering is, what's the product of, the, of this freedom? How does it impact how we relate to one another? And Paul's answer is that we're able to love one another more than we were able to love them before. And we're able to love God more than we were ever able to love him before. You see, when we know that we're all equally in need of God's grace... And we're all equally welcomed by him. We're no longer looking over our shoulder at the next guy. You see, we're only truly able to love our neighbour when we recognise that when we stand before God, I haven't got more than that guy, and that guy hasn't got more than me. You see, the Gospel says that before God, I can stand in a line with Barack Obama on this side, and Steve, the homeless guy who came to the breakfast club this morning, and none of us have got anything. We're equal before him. We all need Jesus. And it's only that that can enable us to truly love our neighbours as ourselves. It drives out racism and it drives out prejudice and classism and sexism because we're no longer basing our identities on our relative success or relative high status to our neighbour. We're loving our neighbour as ourselves. But what about loving God? If we say that moral success or moral failure count for nothing and earthly status or earthly lack of status count for nothing, then what incentive do we have to live a holy life before God? I think this is all the more important in living in a capitalist society as we do, where we tend to see everything in terms of self-interest, don't we? If there's, if there's nothing in it for me, there's no reason for me to do it. That's the kind of unspoken rule of our society. And yet, actually... Self-interest isn't the primary motivator, love is. Let me explain. The one person, the person in this world I would do most for is Lizzie, my wife. I would, I would do far more for Lizzie than I would do for any of you, sorry. <laughs> right? 
I would, you know, if her life was on the line, I would cross continents, I would happily endure torture, I would go to death for her if, if I had to, if it was to save her life. And yet she's the one person in the world, I wouldn't earn anything by doing that. She already loves me, she already accepts me, she couldn't pay me for it because everything I have is hers. I don't benefit anything by doing that. But I'll go the extra mile for her because I love her. You see, when the barriers are removed, when Jesus builds a bridge and he enables us to come to know God as Father and be welcomed into his family, we're free to be his sons and we're free to love him. And the Bible says that love produces the enduring and impassioned fervour to live a holy life. It's love for God that drives us to want to live a holy life. That's why James says that faith without works is dead. Because if, once we've had faith and, and thereby been able to love God, we want to serve him, we want to please him, we can't help ourselves. And I think this is hugely important because there's a lot of false teaching going around which is preaching that holiness, the grace of God and holiness is mutually exclusive. It isn't. Have you heard this phrase, you can't outgrace God? <clears throat> Excusing a sin, living in willful sin because of God's graciousness. Well, if you're living in willful sin, then you haven't experienced the grace of God. The grace of God causes us to love him, and out of love, we want to serve him. We're not doing it because we're earning anything from him. We're not doing it because it adds to our standing before him. We're doing it because we love him. I just wanted to finish um, on a story. I heard this story about, must have been about three years ago, and I tried my hardest to find a kind of copy of it uh, in in books and on websites and stuff, and I couldn't find a copy, so you'll just have to take my version of it, and I might get the numbers wrong, but I'm sure the essence of the story remains. Um, It was during uh, the Second World War, and um, uh, during wartime, something that was common for King George VI to do with his wife, who later became the Queen Mum, was to visit hospitals, and and world leaders do it today, don't they? They, They'll visit soldiers in hospital who've been injured on the front line, and what King George would do is he'd go around hospitals and visit soldiers, and he'd shake their hand, and he'd look them in the eye, and he'd say, your king and country thanks you for your service. Maybe he'd spend some time talking to the family. And there came a time for one of these visits, where King George was going to go and visit a hospital. And it was slightly different in that these were men that had just come back from the front line and, and they were the worst of the worst. They were the men that had had limbs blown off. They were men that had suffered horrific burns all over their body. They, they were just uh, disfigured in just unimaginable ways. And so in a sense it wasn't really a, a photo call, but it was a personal trip for the king. And so he got to the hospital... And he went to the ward and was introduced to the matron. And the matron started to take him round the beds. And it was a picture of devastation. And as he walked round, he'd shake their hand, if they still had a hand. And he'd look them in the eye, if they could still see. And he'd say, your king and country thanks you for your service. 
And maybe he'd spend some time talking to them and then he'd move on to the next bed. And he was, he'd been meant to see 30 guys. And he walked around 25 beds and he looked at the remaining five beds and they were empty. And so he said to the matron, he said, where are the other five guys? I was supposed to see, I was supposed to see 30 today. And the matron blushed a little bit. She said, I'm really sorry, but the, the head of the hospital has made a decision that those remaining five, they're, they're too disfigured. They're too injured. Many of them are, are right on the verge of death. They're, they're, some of them are just crying in their beds. They're the ones that have parts of their faces missing. It's really disturbing. And they said, look, Your Majesty, you, you've come to lift morale. And this, this won't help. You, you, we don't want you to see this. And King George was outraged by this, and he said, no, I've come to see the sick and the dying. I want to see the sick and the dying. And so the matron went back up to the head of the hospital and said, look, the king's demanding to see those guys. And the head of the hospital obviously said, well, he's the king, you know, send him up, send him through. And so they led him through to another part of the ward where these five men were. And it was just the devastation of war laid bare. These were the most injured of the men in the hospital and the king went round each bed and he sat with each man and it said that he he just embraced them and he wept with them the king of England sat next to them and he wept with them now I believe that there are some people here who might be beaten up maybe you've had a massive failure maybe you've been massively failed maybe you've suffered loss just the wars of life have taken their toll on you. And the temptation at this stage is to hide yourself away. Is to move, move yourself into that other ward and say, the king doesn't need to see me. But you see, the gospel says that when we put our trust in him, he's more than enough. You see, unlike King George, who could only sit there and weep, Jesus will sit there and yeah, he'll weep with you. But he'll bring healing where there's hurt and restoration. He'll bring joy where there is heartbreak. Maybe there's some people in here who are starting to recognise that actually, based on my own identity, based on my own successes, I'm not going to make that final exam. Well, I appeal to you this afternoon. Let Jesus come along. Let him put his name at the top of the exam paper. That offer's open for you today. And if um, you want to receive that offer, please do go and speak to one of the leadership or someone in the ministry team. Um, But for now, I think let's just respond by worshipping God.